Go ahead, Ray. You! You worthless piece of slime! You ignorant, disgusting clown! Nothing but an unstable short chain molecule! It's the stuff. It's like pure concentrated evil. It's all flowing right to this spot. Material devolution has begun. Welcome back, ladies and gents. Fantastic to have you here. I'm just getting over a cold myself, so I'm happy to not be sounding like Bruce Buffer at the Pacquiao Mayweather fight. How you doing today, Matt? <laughs> oh, man. What a shame, Bruce Buffer, huh? I know, they had the two announcers, and Jimmy Lennon, he still sound pretty proper. Poor he Bruce. Did. Bruce Legend. It's just uh, something's with the throat. I don't know. Does he have some condition or something? I don't know, but... Uh... You know, he just sounded like it was his voice was getting tired. Still better than the fight. Still better than the fight. And Jamie Foxx. And Jamie Foxx. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, we're going to change it up this week a little bit. We're going to do a little round robin. I'll let Devin introduce uh, the first story. going to pick a, from a few topics that we uh, decided were relevant and uh, something we wanted to talk about this week. So, uh, Devin, go ahead. Bring it in. Yeah, normally we kick it off and just do one big story, uh, a longer piece. Today we just feel like we wanted to touch on a few different things and see how a different format would go in terms of you know exploring different ideas and jumping around in some different fields. So the first story we wanted to talk about is uh, the NSA program on recording all phone records was ruled illegal recently. So basically a federal appeals court ruled that the NSA collecting everybody's phone records violated the U.S. Patriot Act. And this is like the first time that an appellate court's weighed in on the program. So there was almost a 100-page opinion from a three-panel of judges that just basically tore into the government and said they overreached. But they went short of actually putting injunction on the program. They said they were going to leave it up to the discretion of Congress. So we're at the stage right now where Congress is debating whether they should authorize the statute that enables this law. So that's the story, and it's really interesting. It's related a lot to with Edward Snowden exposing this program existed. So I was really interested that this actually happened. You know, it's pretty rare that a federal appeals court would go after the NSA like this and, and bring something like this, you know, to the next level, which I'm not sure what is. It's going to be going to be something. What do you think, Matt? Yeah, this is a really interesting story um, and something that, you know, this started two years ago, 2013. With Snowden. Snowden, you know, leaking this, these documents. He's been in Russia ever since. Yeah, so, a, lot, a lot of this was secretive before, and they were kind of forced to do it in public now that we know about it. Right. I mean, we wouldn't even have this conversation if it wasn't for this man leaking these documents. Yeah, this, this would be happening. It'd just be secretive. Yeah, exactly. It would be happening, and there wouldn't be any ruling on it um, at all. And now it's ruled illegal. So this is the, the 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 biggest thing that I think we we also need to talk about is a little bit about now. Do you how what do we do with Snowden? Oh, do we let him back? Because there's there's that story that he's trying to make the first steps to coming back here. Yeah, you know, on probably the basis that we don't throw him in jail for the rest of his life. 
Right. right, because he's right now he's branded as a traitor and not a whistleblower. But like this actually proves that there was something illegal going on that needed to be brought to light. And they would say like, well, there's legal means to go ahead and do this and to release these these documents. That's but, always the excuse. And you and I both know that in the cases where people do go through the proper channels, they always say go through the proper channels, you're blackballed. Yeah. You're, you're treated as an outcast, you're, you're, shun, you're shunned, or, or, you're a black sheep. Or at one place... In that level, then somebody just wipes them under the table. Yeah. You know, under the rug. Just wipes them under the rug. So anyway, bring it back to, you know, the, the actual story of now. Um, you know, the Section 215, that's the Patriot Act section, um, is actually uh, due to expire on June 1st. And so there's now a debate, like, within Congress, like, of what to do. It kind of threw a little monkey wrench. Well, they know they're going to renew it. It's now, like, you renew it as is, or do you renew it with modifications? And that's where the two camps are, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and it's actually a little bit more kind of convoluted than that. It's like, do we do we scrap the whole thing, and we, or do we revise it, or do we try to push it forward, uh, you know, as is? So I, there's I, actually, I, like, I, three. I, I didn't really think the contingent to scrap it was very large, though. I thought like the two major contingents were they want to renew it as it is. That's like the majority leader, Mitch McConnell, and them. They want to maintain the program. And then there's another bipartisan group that they want to renew it with modifications. Right, right. Yeah, and then the, you I'm got sure the guys. A, there's a few who want to scrap it, but not enough to have a loud enough voice where like, hey, Patriot Act in general, let's roll this whole thing back. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, they don't want to have like a short-term extension at all. You know, if they do something, it has to be like a long-term type of type of deal. They don't want to patchwork it. Yeah. Like for me, for me, the most interesting point of the story I wanted to highlight was the arguments being made because the court ruling it was a 97-page uh, document that really tore into the government, and some of the government's arguments just really showed the intellectual weakness and dishonesty of their position because their argument boiled down to that these huge volumes of data that are being collected by everyone from Verizon to Pacific Bell to everyone across the country, random private companies creating phone records, that all these records are relevant to counterterrorism investigations because records could prove critical later to identify suspects. And this was agreed upon by a series of judges on the secretive Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. They agreed that that was a legit argument and that's why they were able to authorize the program. Well, in the ruling, uh, Judge Gerard E. Lynch, uh, the panel noted the government never attempted to identify what particular authorized investigation the data of all Americans' phone calls would be relevant to. Like, like <laughs> you know, like there's just a, there's not one particular investigation, but we need 330 million people's records. So at, at its core, the panel said the approach boils down to the proposition that essentially all telephone records are relevant to essentially all international terrorism investigations. So the government's argument was so weak and so vague, they're essentially saying one investigation justifies access to everything in existence. Well, I can't believe that they even would initiate a program like this because doesn't the bulk collection of all these phone records actually detract from the actual mission that they're trying to accomplish? By having so much to sift through and being, a, 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 and wouldn't it be easier to actually target a smaller group and then focus on that? Well, I don't want to go full conspiracy theory here, but the theory proposed by some, and it's just a theory, I'm not saying I believe it 100%, is that, you know, that's the shield to create the system. The purpose isn't to stop terrorists. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, that might be uh, a use for it, let's say. Right, that's right, not the, right. That's not the purpose of its design. The purpose not of Not saying you can't catch terrorists. Not saying you can't. You might be able to do it very well. The purpose of its design, some would argue, is kind of like a civil reinfrastructure of a security apparatus. Yeah. You've got this minority report type system that now can decipher everybody's information in real time with some type of algorithm to make predictions about who could maybe, you know, be prevalent to commit crime, who could speak out about the government, who is doing things the government wants to keep an eye on, checking out certain books, writing certain movies, talking to certain people. Very creepy stuff. Very creepy stuff because whether or not that is the purpose of it, which some would say, it could serve that purpose, just like it served the purpose of targeting terrorists. You're basically saying let's build a security system and trust us to use it for the right reasons. Yeah, a very, very pervasive security system, right? Like, so, I mean, you can really delve into people's psyche and their what they do and how they act. And like you said, predict what they're going to do next based on this data that, are, that they can collect. It, just the creation of such a, a system really shows that we're at that stage where the technology is there to create the apparatus, you know, people didn't believe this was really possible. Listen, whether they have malintent or not, it's a scary proposition. Of course, like I said, when you're building the apparatus, just the fact that people are running it scares me because even the people with the best of intentions can make the worst of mistakes. It's been proven time and time again throughout history. True. So, you know, we're, we're people, we're fallible. We shouldn't create a system that could accidentally entrap us and ruin our way of life, mm-hmm. you know, because we can't trust ourselves to run that system. We need to have safeguards in place and have a system designed where that's not even a possibility. Right, right. So, you know, it's kind of like, we'll, we'll, we'll risk the freedom for the security. Well, I also think so that there's a very like, dangerous risk. I also think that there's like infinite variables of like why people are doing what they're doing and or, or searching what they're searching on the internet or talking about what they're talking about. And not all of it, is is nefarious or criminal you know what i mean you can have conversations that have strange underlines when you're actually just having philosophical questions being asked yeah you're playing devil's advocate exactly you know you you, you want to know what the enemy has to say now this isn't to try to be like the uh Who's the guy in the who? Like Pete Townsend, like, I was looking at child porn to, you know, because I'm on this panel investigating it. We're trying to fight it. (laughs) We're not talking about that. But sometimes you want to know the unpopular opinion. So you might look at a website that has terrible views about Americans and stuff like that because you want to understand better what the enemy or what the other, let's say, thinks about you. Right. It's not because you would necessarily have that point of view. So by simply wanting to know what al-Qaeda thinks, you could somehow be associated with being al-Qaeda. Right, exactly. You know? And there, that's where it gets really interesting. Because I would, never, I, I would never support al-Qaeda in any way, shape, or form. Right. But, but in the sake of intellectual honesty, I do want to know what they say so I can chew it up and shit it out as the garbage it is. But if I'm not willing to sit there and absorb it, then I can't really say with any, with any intellectual certainty that they make a bad argument. You, well, you know, I think you, you gotta let people, you gotta I, people hang themselves with their own words. Right? I think that you also really need to, you know, understand who, what the threats are out there. Like, not just like secondhand. Like, I need to know what these people are all about. Like, for me, 
to make me feel more comfortable with whatever's going on in the world. And you'll understand the perspective better. You know, like, yeah. how can you not need to see things from all eyes? You know, there's an incident that occurs and you want to see it from your eyes and the person who was on the other side of that incident. Because the truth sometimes lies in the middle. You have biases you can't admit yourself. Yep. So, it's interesting stuff. Uh, let's move to the next topic. I think we kind of touched on that one nicely. We'll see what happens in June. Uh, I I'm guessing they're going to renew it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Possibly I, with modifications, not scrap it. I would think with modifications, apparently there's going to be a couple of filibusters going to get uh, some really interesting uh, political, uh, you know, goings on in Washington. So second story, Matt, why don't you give us a little little lead in on this one? Uh, the second story we are going to do is, uh, so, you know, we live in Southern California. We're in San Diego. We live along the border, right? Mm -hmm. And so... Um, we've been in border lines, <laughs> right? The San Ysidro border lines, uh, sometimes together, sometimes not, but spent some good time in those lines. And anybody that has gone through those borders knows that uh, you can sit there for quite some time. Um, so apparently, uh, this article is in revealnews.org, and it says the air is dark and asthma is deadly along the Mexican border. And what it's about is out in uh, Calexico in the uh, in Imperial, uh, there are having a a epidemic of asthma, basically. And what's going on is is that you know at first they thought it was from just the agricultural burns and things like this that go out on out there. It is an agricultural community, um, a very poor community at that. But what? Uh, they have found is is that these air particles um, are coming from these emissions from these cars and trucks sitting at the Calexico border crossing, and um, children are being affected. And I mean, this is crazy the amount of, of people and the amount of, of of times these kids are are being rushed to the emergency room out of schools. You know, so it talks about. Uh, uh, this doctor, uh, her name is uh, Dr. Uh, Sema Khan, and she's a pediatrician in California, is Imperial Valley. And uh, the gusty days, and it swirls around this, this, this dust and these, these particles, and, 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 and people are inhaling these things. And not only are they getting asthma from people that have lived there, but her family got asthma after moving there and just living there for, for just a few years, her, her kids have gotten asthma from, from, from being out there. So honestly, I never even heard of this, man. I, I, I really didn't until you brought this up. I had no idea that something like this was going on or even could, to be honest with you. And it's a combination of things, which is interesting. It's actually a, a, a three-headed hydra, it seems, where they say it's number one, traffic. There's a huge amount of uh, traffic going through Imperial County. It's a major, major crossing area. It's like millions of vehicles a day. On, so that's like Route 8, like, how, uh, like the 8. Uh, basically, I think so. On top of that, you've basically got the second problem, which is the border crossing. Now, what they say is uh, it's the third busiest land port in California. Uh, traffic chokehold in which some 22,000 northbound vehicles come to a standstill on Mexicali streets each day. At peak times, vehicles form a one and a quarter mile or more chain, idling for up to three and a half hours. So you've got thousands, 
tens of thousands of vehicles all idling in the same area yeah. for extended periods of time. Yeah. And that's when most vehicles pump out the most uh, pollutants. Right, and that the wind blows from the south through that that county. So you're you're getting I mean I mean it really is like the perfect storm. So that's the second major problem. The third one is there's a lot of industrial problems from what I've read in this article. They say that, you know, there's been a boom in investment, but because of relaxed air regulations, open air burning is a way of life down there. Mm -hmm. So there's petroleum facilities, paper manufacturers, power plants built by U.S. companies. People use garbage fires, New Year's bonfires. I mean, anybody who's been to this Tijuana can see any point of the border. You know, there's such a problem when you get these combination of factors from the vehicles crossing to the vehicles idling to the deregulated industrial areas. It's just it's, it's, it's scary when you want to walk around with a surgical mask during the day. Yeah, but this is a place where you would really want to do something like that. Yeah, definitely. And the article did talk about they're investing and in trying to fix this. Like there's a $100 million uh, phase of building a new border crossing because if you can expedite the border process, you don't have this problem of all these vehicles idling. But in the meantime, if you're in Imperial Valley, you're in a lot of trouble. I mean, the article pointed out that uh, since 2009, a study found that one in five children had been diagnosed with asthma yeah. at some point in their life. They hold the state God. record for asthma hospitalizations for children. I mean, all these problems where clearly there's some type of environmental crisis happening. Uh-huh. And there's nothing that's being done except, hey, we're building a new, uh, a new border crossing, so it'll be faster. Hopefully it won't be as bad for you in a few years. Yeah, it talks about this one young girl, 11-year-old Gwyneth Rodriguez. It says that she was hospitalized the first time with asthma at five. And since then, she has been rushed to the emergency room countless times, quote, her mother says. Unbelievable. She's 11 years old. You can't just move. Well, yeah, well, that's what it talks about. You know, like, like these people, these people can't, can't really move, right? It's I mean, a poor community. It's a poor community. Where the heck are you going to go? Yeah, you are where you are. That's where your roots are. That's where your jobs are. That's it. This is where you are. You're stuck. You're kind of just stuck and ready to deal with it. So... Uh, 115 degrees outside. It's an interesting story, and it just highlights the fact that, you know, our impact, we push it onto other countries. You know, like like the border crossing is designed to benefit us. There's no uh, four-hour wait going into Mexico. True. So it's sad to see when these problems are, you know, implicitly affecting the other country more than your own. You know, like where the border crossing has been designated, it's never usually in, like, highly populated areas design where there could be an environmental impact for the U.S., but there's always a big Mexican town right there on the border. Yeah, but this is, this is, in the, this is here. Calexico is, you know, in, in, in the Imperial Valley is in California. Yeah, that, that is a problem with it too, uh, for sure, without a doubt. I mean, uh, like I said, Tijuana or Calexico, you know, it just shows that the border problem crossing, it's affecting everyone. Oh yeah, sides, I yeah. mean yeah, both sides for sure. I mean like you think it's just in California part of the Where, wherever the, wherever no. there's a border crossing. So what kind of what kind of what kind of health risks are are the people of Calexico in Mexico like you said having that aren't being shown in a aren't study like reported. this, right? No. I mean they don't even have the means to even have a doctor like this doctor that's that's there trying to actually help these people. 
it's scary in places where it's been accepted. My friend was in China recently and he got back and he said there's so many people walking around with uh, surgical masks in public. It's just the norm. Mm -hmm. It's so polluted, you know, when you're in the industrial parts of China that it's night during day. And he said that's it's the norm, so people don't want to know. Like, you really don't want to know. Yeah, yeah, no shit. So, like this, dude, like you were saying, Mexicali is on the border of Calexico, right? And I don't, I, it says due largely to NAFTA, but, you know, that, that, that might, may or may not be true. Has become one of the most toxic metropolises in North America. Yeah, the Mexicali Valley. Unbelievable. <laughs> that's where a lot of you know like closest place you can get slightly deregulated for uh you know air quality there's no epa in Mexico. yeah it's kind of like we're just out here we can uh, run these plants you know it's pretty clear air on the desert so uh be careful when you're in mexico especially at the border yes ladies and gentlemen so put on your mask <laughs> when you approach the border crossing or just just keep heading south make make it to baja or maybe at least ensenada where the surfing's good get some lobster tacos air is pretty clean out there campo lopez <laughs> so let's uh let's move to the next story matt uh I, I was really interested in that mexico one maybe there's not as much to talk about as much as it's just uh an interesting thing to observe because there's almost nothing that can be done about it except to sit back and and watch what happens right yeah i mean without really delving into you know whether or not the companies out there are actually abiding by any EPA regulations um, right now. I mean, obviously, I'm just speaking in hypotheticals, not even speculating whether they are or not. But you would really have to dig into things like that. I mean, it's pretty much black and white. There's pollution in the air. Uh, the studies from San Diego State University showed that most of the pollution in that area was coming from the border crossing. There's an epidemic amount of, of children that has uh, asthma from this and uh, yeah there's one doctor over there you know trying to really make a difference and help these people out it's crazy it really is so uh, we'll keep an eye on that and uh, I mean anybody who lives in Southern California you know LA is just the beginning it could get a lot worse than that <laughs> ladies and gentlemen trust me yeah, LA's actually cleaned gotten, up LA. LA's yeah. gotten better over the year. They say, you but see every time, smog. every time I I see it, every time I drive by, <laughs> every time they say it's gotten better. I'm not. I wasn't that young to see it when it was worse. That's scary to me. It's scary. So if it was worse, that's even scarier. Yeah. So hey, let's talk about this one. This is really really big right now because of what's going on with the police and and the shootings on the from the police side, right? Uh, shootings of of of, of Black, unarmed people, um, black men. Um, but Devin, you brought up this article of this armed guard industry uh, and how it's out of control. And the things that I read in this article were not only shocking, but they were seriously, seriously laughable. Like I had to chuckle at myself. I can't even believe what I was reading. I, I couldn't believe it. I was right there with you. This was a story from revealnews.org titled Five Ways the Armed Guard Industry is Out of Control. And I really have very little idea before I read this article about some of the intricacies of how security companies worked. For the most part, I assumed, you know, most security guards are just carrying a taser or something like that. And to carry a firearm 
you know, there'd be this big, big process you'd go through. You'd be vetted. You'd get, you know, weeks, if not months of training to get you ready to handle this very situation. You need to come from a specific background because they want a certain type of person to be carrying a firearm. Pretty much all that's wrong is what I've learned. <laughs> Pretty much everything I learned is wrong. Uh, you know, the, the, main, the main summation of the story was that across the U.S., regulations for armed guards are patchy and inconsistent at best. 39 states don't check whether armed guards are prohibited from professing a firearm. So you might have be legally withheld. You're not supposed to legally own a firearm. <laughs> They're not going to check that when they hire you. And then they'll give you a gun. Only four states require applicants to pass a mental health exam. So that means 46 states don't care whether you're crazy. A whopping 49 states don't check whether a potential employee has a troubled history in law enforcement. If you were dishonorably discharged or involved in a lawsuit for brutality, yeah, that's definitely not our problem. We see your law enforcement background as a plus. So when that dude gets out from shooting that guy in North Charleston, he can just go ahead and become a security guard. He's good to go. So the, where they really highlighted this and where they really show you how asinine the training they're providing to people is, was where they compared the training for nail specialists or manicurists. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a position that actually takes a good amount of training. Usually takes anywhere from like a, a couple hundred hours to almost a thousand hours to become a certified manicurist. Well, in many, many states, the disparity is shocking. In Alabama, 750 hours of training to become a certified manicurist. 12 hours of training to become a certified security guard with only four hours of those 12 for firearm certification. So at, at, at one and a half days worth of training, you're ready to become a security guard and hold a firearm to what would take months to cut somebody's toenails and fingernails. Why wouldn't we hold these people to the same standard as like a regular officer of the law? You know, in I, regards, at least in regards to the checks and the training, as far as the the the, the, the weapons training, because it's not a standardized industry; it's private industry. Mm. You can regulate yourself, right. self-regulated industry. Wow! And the industry regulations are always going to be to deregulate as much as possible. It makes it an easier process. These are all problems. You have less applicants. Who wants to be a security guard? I mean, you're literally paying somebody twelve fifty an hour to guard a warehouse. And yet you're going to give them a gun and a license to fire. There were scary things about this that uh, in many of these states, you're not even required to report if you fire your gun. Yeah. And that's crazy. 38 states, they say, don't require security companies to disclose when employees fire their weapon. Every single state requires a police officer to disclose when they fired their weapon. I mean, unless you're shooting in the air to celebrate the 4th of July, uh, something tells me if you fired your gun, there was an incident. So why wouldn't a private security company have to report this? Once again, it's bad for business. Mm -hmm. And only one state checks if the applicants have a law enforcement background and were fired because they screwed up. Uh, and even in that state, which is Oregon, no one has been denied <laughs> a license because of their questionable and uh, law enforcement record. So. Um, they have no interest in your background. They have no interest in that. They just need to get you out there and walk your walk your beat. 
a lot of them just don't even do background checks, period, let alone like check your, your police background. They just don't do any background check. And for me, that's crazy. As the article pointed out, you know, if you're a private citizen, usually you have to have a background check. It's pretty standard. Well, if you're hired as a security guard, you don't have to because the security company that hired you, they did, it's up to them. They assumed that if they wanted to do a background check to hire you for security, that's their right to do so. Yeah. So you've got all these loopholes that allow people to be put in positions where they have weapons and, you know, we're paying them, you know, barely enough to, to feed themselves on a week-to-week basis. Yeah. You know, we're trusting them with the ability to end somebody's life in a split second by pulling a trigger. Uh, really highlights the, the danger we are placing ourselves in. You know, it's almost like a growing police state. Yeah. And that if there's not a lot of police being armed, well, we, we don't need the police being armed, but we'll replace them with a bunch of inept private security personnel who've gotten 12 to 14 hours of training. Well, I thought it was funny, like this Arizona one where the guy was a 19-year-old security guard, um, had a rap sheet as a juvenile, assault, aggravated assault, assault with a deadly weapon, like 11 and 13, wasn't even supposed to have a weapon, and ended up shooting and paralyzing an 18-year-old for stealing some Cheetos and some other food out of like the Circle K, paralyzing him from the waist down. So this 19-year-old, 19 with the with the record shot an eighteen year old, the justification for how I got in this position was pretty ridiculous. The official told uh, the reveal that we figured this kid would know he's not supposed to have a weapon. That was the one that made me laugh out loud. You know he should know better. I LOL'd everybody. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like 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 we could have looked, but like he should know. So like why why should we look if he should he know? He should just tell us. Obviously, that's right? what that's what responsible people do. Because your whole idea is like not to get the job, right? Yeah. <laughs> like I'm applying, but I'm going to tell you that I'm going to have this because I really don't want the job. I mean, we told you you shouldn't have a gun, so when you're put in a position to have a gun, you should tell them you're not allowed to have a gun because clearly, you know, you don't want one if you're trying to put <laughs> you yourself don't in that want position. One. <laughs> Ridiculous. So uh, interesting to learn about. We're going to link to all these stories in our. Uh, our post on uh, both our website and on YouTube where we link to. So uh, we'd encourage you to check these stories out and read about it on your own. Interesting stuff. Uh, this was a little bit of a, just a shorter one I wanted to touch on. I want to move into kind of the last two stories. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll hit the heavier one first, Matt. Uh, this one's about the U.S. military and fraud that personnel have been convicted of in Iraq and Afghanistan. Really, really interesting story. Uh, I read about this from publicintegrity.org, which is the Center for Public Integrity, uh, and it's all about that. Touche. Since 2005, the last 10 years, 115 U.S. service members have been convicted of crimes valued at more than 50 million in Iraq and Afghanistan. And this includes stealing, rigging contracts, and taking bribes. So there's all these different types of fraud going on, being committed by U.S. military personnel, for a variety of reasons which seem like very systemic. You know, they say it's because of loose military oversight, uh, the culture is very corrupt, we're kind of required to use large cash transactions. The situation's ripe for anybody with slippery ethics or morals to take advantage of the situation. So it was crazy to read about this and see that, you know, it's such a problem 
it's so problematic because you know this is only a fraction of what's being caught. Oh, yeah. Only 115 soldiers since 2005. Yeah, I mean, the, the article... 115. 115. So, you know, one of the... I think it was the... Uh, but what they stole, I mean, they 115 soldiers stole, the, stole more than 150 uh, million. Not 150 million, excuse me. 50 million. 50 million. That, uh, that's what they've been convicted of. Yeah. So for the ones we don't know, who knows... What, what that was. If this was 10%, does that mean there's 500 million that's been bribed and sold? And it's interesting the types of fraud. There's so many clever ways you can do it. You know, there's there's contract fraud where the personnel who are in charge of overseeing the contracts work with local companies to make sure that things are rushed to them even if they're not the best person to serve it out. There's stealing fuel, which is what one of the main stories in this talked about, which was a U.S. Army specialist Stephanie Charbonneau, who was involved in selling fuel on the side to Afghan locals. Yeah. They're basically guarding fuel reserves and they were siphoning it off and selling it to locals. Millions of dollars worth. So that's another way where you're taking basically US property paid for by the taxpayers and you know selling it on the side for your own profit. And there's even third type of fraud the article highlighted, which was rigging property for theft, where soldiers were complicit in like marking what to steal and then leaving stuff unguarded in completion with you know locals uh, once again steal stuff sell it on the black market for a profit mm -hmm. so you're basically you know you're, you're rigging the game for yourself so I, you know i wasn't damn shocked by this article because you know this is being committed but i was shocked at the scale because you know in the article it talked about there's 327 active investigations still underway yeah, yeah those are just investigations this is like where they have time to know about the stuff so we're talking about 115 convictions 300 active investigations how systemic is this i would imagine that it's extremely easy to do for a while Depending on where you are. You have a large-scale operation with a lot of things going on. There's a lot of distraction as far as militarily, uh, military operations from the top level, right? Captains and above. And so down in the company level and the platoon level, yeah, you kind of have a little bit more freedom than you would in, a, in other areas of, uh, of the military. Yeah, how much oversight is there, you know, at that level? In the, in like the contractor level, when you're not involved in operations, military operations. Right, you know, yeah. Like act, actual exactly. like, uh, what do you call it? Something where there's going to be live fire operations where you're like at a base, mm -hmm. rebuilding. Yeah. How much oversight is there? I, I don't even know. Well, here's the deal. When we redeployed back, uh, I went down to um, Camp Victory in Kuwait, and it... When was this? It was, it was in 2003 um, and uh, 2004 is when we when I went there. And anyway, it was like Lord of the Flies. Like it was like literally, we came from like living in a dam on the Haditha, you know, in the Haditha Dam on the on Euphrates River, and we rolled in, and it was like they had this club camo and like all these like these these, these built up barracks and these like. PXs that were there and, and, and these big chow halls and like all these people who lived there on that base were just 
had zero military bearing. So I could imagine like that type of rear echelon organization that I witnessed loose the bu- oversight. The, the bureaucratic wing of the military. Yeah, I, I witnessed the fact that these people were not living a military lifestyle even though they were deployed. They, they, they aren't rising at dawn and falling in formation and everything's regimented and very, very tight-knit. No. Right, exactly. It was like, man, we're over here. We really don't have that much going on. You know, We're getting paid a little bit extra money. We're actually getting paid because we're part of combat operations. I still get to wear a combat patch when I go home. <laughs> you know, all that stuff. And uh, yet, you know, shit, man, formations. I'm talking about like... You like sleeping two hours at night, two hours on, two hours off in the freaking gun turret of a freaking Bradley, you know, sitting on a hill somewhere. Like that's the type of shit that we were doing. And these people had zero oversight. That's what that's what I was getting. So no, you said you said Lord of the Flies. Yeah, man, that bad. Like that. It seemed like that coming from where we came from. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very testosterone fueled. Well, it's lax, like they're lax environment. Lax environment, like people having sex in the freaking like porta potties and like drinking oh. and like we weren't supposed to be drinking in like combat zones, you of know, course. and things like that. And like just that type of thing. So if that was going on, then think about the type of theft that can be going on at the same time. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah, there was a really, really interesting uh, graph that if you check the article out is amazing where it compares the last 10 years of military fraud schemes resulting in convictions in Iraq and Kuwait versus military fraud schemes resulting in convictions in Afghanistan. And what it shows is there's a direct correlation between where the funding, military funding goes and where the fraud schemes are being committed. What a coincidence. So as the funding shifted from Iraq to Afghanistan over the last 10 years, the fraud shifted. It's almost like an inversion. So that there was a ton of fraud and there was a ton of funding in Iraq 10 years ago. Now there's almost not, no funding and no fraud there. We aren't investing in it anymore, so there's no more fraud. Well, we're investing in Afghanistan now and fraud skyrocketed there. It's up 10 times to what it was in 2005. Because mm. the money's flowing. Because mo- that's where the money's flowing. So the fraud flows where the money flows, you know, both at Iraq and Afghanistan. So it's just opportunistic. Very opportunistic and they're kind of like pre-positioned to have these conditions, you know, they're cultures that are very tribal, they're very uh, corrupt, very corrupt parts of the world, they, they involve cash usually, oh, well, I told large you. cash transactions, these are all appetites for, for fraud. And I told you that, you know, my brother-in-law was a PSYOP team leader and was saying that, that they used to pay these guys to not fight, these guys, uh, the tribal leaders. Standard operating big, procedure. Well, and, and, and cash heavy, right? What if they're not paying them with their fucking debit card? You know, and that's, it's funny because it's like you hear that and it, it's going to make you mad because that, that's the basic premise is literally at times we're paying, we're, we're using taxpayer money to pay this guy to not kill this guy for a little while. Yeah, exactly. And then but, you leave but, and then, but you then have to, you have to accept that's the way that part of the world works. If you're going to go to that part of the world, then that, that's how it works. You want them to not fight, you have to bribe them. If not, don't go to that part of the world and tell them not to fight. <laughs> right. Because they're going to fight. Yeah, they don't like each other. And as long as you're bribing them, they won't fight. They've got reason not to fight. You stop bribing them, they're going to fight. Yeah. Hey, they might even take your money and still fight and then tell you it wasn't them. They might. They very well might, but I'm just That's saying. That's probably what's going to happen. So if, if you're going to go there and try to make hey, this Hey, if oral, we take this money and then keep fighting, they're going to give us more money to stop fighting. Well, we, we have this like God complex of like we can control people and 
We've got a very, very loose veil of control. Everybody wants to rule the world. You said it best, my friend. <laughs> so uh, this is a great story. Some of these ones are really long reads. You know, uh, the armed guard story isn't that long, and this last story we're going to touch on isn't as long. But these other three stories, uh, you know, the, uh, the U.S. military stealing, the surveillance story, and the asthma story, they're really amazing pieces of journalism. A lot of personal stories touched on. Uh, really good stuff. So like I said, I encourage you to check it out. Uh, Matt, Matt, why don't you pitch us into our last story we're going to touch on on this podcast today. Well, this one's close to home, huh? Sure. I mean, I, I, I went to SDSU, and this is about a, a UCSD student, but definitely close to home. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, in uh, oh, geographical in many, proximity, I mean, in, literally in, in close many, to home. In many ways, it is close <laughs> to home. But let's not go too much into that. Why don't you give me a little synopsis on this one? Uh, so uh, the DEA left a 23-year-old UCSD student in a holding cell for five days without food or water, and then only... If, if that's not bad enough, uh, they actually settled for $4.1 million, um, but there was only light punishments received for the officers that were involved in leaving him in there for five days. It's such a weird story on so many levels. I mean, just the background of how did a college student get left in a DEA holding cell when all he was doing essentially he was picked up in a DEA raid on a house, a drug dealer house. He went to the house to smoke marijuana, which, as anybody who ever went to college knows, classic college move. You go to your dealer's house to smoke. Because maybe you can't smoke in your dorm, this, that. It's a, it's a safe place. He's a dealer, whatever. You would so, think. So you went, you, Apparently not. He went, went there to smoke marijuana, which uh, both of us obviously don't consider a real crime. But the state might consider it a crime, maybe punishable by a fine or a light arrest or something, he got picked up, they invested, they, you know, they investigated, they talked to him a little, they interviewed him, and they said they were going to let him go, because he wasn't even somebody they were targeting. Right, right, he wasn't part of the And then the they just put him in a holding cell. They left him in there handcuffed, and I guess they didn't have a certain protocol for checking these rooms, because he was there for five days. Yeah, and there were six of these guys uh, that were involved in this incident, and... Four received letters of reprimand, and two were given week-long suspensions without pay. They took away one fifty-second of their yearly salary. Those bastards. The kid was drinking his own urine to survive. Well, I, I don't think that was helping, but he was drinking his own urine, so he was delirious. Yeah, the kid was hospitalized, post-traumatic stress, dehydration, all these yeah, things. Yeah, I heard it doesn't help, really, right? You're not really supposed to do that. Yeah, so... Drink your own urine. Really scary. What's your take on that? What, what's your opinion? Drinking urine? Yeah, five days in a holding cell, do you drink it or not? Well, they say it actually dehydrates you further. Yeah, well, it's salty, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> but it's 97% water. It has ammonia in it. So uh, it will it will dehydrate you. Drinking your own urine if you're uh, you know, dying of, of thirst will not help. They, they, it will expedite your death, so I don't recommend it. But it's like if you're delirious, it might seem like a good idea at the time. So, Daniel, next time, buddy, don't do that. Don't do that, Daniel. But I'm, I'm uh, sorry it happened to you, though. I am. A ridiculous, ridiculous story. I mean, uh, what's scary? So he was left handcuffed, handcuffed in a windowless cell. Like it's not even like he was in this like cell, like walking around, could move. Like he was handcuffed in this cell. They just like chucked him in there, and then they forgot about him. Pretty much. And the scary thing is, like you pointed out, the punishment's so light that 
to me it highlights that this is a PR problem. It's not a conduct problem. The only person who really took punishment for this was the DEA uh, administrator, Michelle Leonhardt, Leonhardt who uh, she resigned amidst the scandal. So basically, somebody's head had to fall, and it was a bureaucratic administrator because I guess they were responsible for not instituting a new pattern of holding surveillance for, right. for the entire right, right, right. division yeah. instead of the actual people who were there doing this to the person. Right. So you don't actually punish anybody directly involved. You find somebody who can fall on their bureaucratic administrative sword, take a paid leave, whatever. So you're not really going to change the nature of conduct. Right. Exactly. That's what scares me. Well, and, and, and their process is under scrutiny anyway because last month, like, no DEA agents were fired for their participation in illicit sex parties with Colombian prostitutes provided by drug cartels. Yeah, ex exactly. That was part of the scandal. There was the, the prostitute scandal and this scandal, and she resigned. So it's like, we're not going to charge anybody who was involved in almost killing this kid for smoking weed. Yeah. We're not going to charge anybody who was involved with using taxpayer funneled money to hire hookers for CIA operatives. These aren't people that, that, are, that are worth punishing. Well, apparently the apparently. cartels were paying for the sex, so at least our money wasn't. Ah, paying okay. For the sex. Good, good. You know, I'm glad you know. some third party. But I'm glad that we're paying their salaries to be down there hanging out with the cartels that they're supposed to uh, be, uh, be busting. Or was it undercover? So is that the story? Was it, were they like, hey, I had to be undercover, and they were providing these hookers for us, so you know I couldn't blow my cover. That's true. <laughs> but enough about the hookers. Uh, back to Mr. Uh, Mr. Chong here for a quick moment to wrap things up. I, I also thought it was interesting, uh, the story, which is uh, from freebeacon.com. I'm sure there's a bunch of different other uh, stories about this as well, though. It references that Senator Chuck Grassley... Uh, he wrote this letter to the Justice Department about it because he sent them a letter eight months ago with 19 questions about the, uh, the incident from simple things such as which agents placed him in the holding cell and told him he was going to be released. They've refused to answer the letter. They haven't responded to it. So it's like a senator wants to know which agent put him in the cell. And they're like, well, we're not going to tell you that. Damn. Like you're, you're, you're not you're not worth telling. Oh wait, you're just a senator. Uh huh. We can we can just do what we want, respond how we want. Yeah. Unless you subpoena me. Sorry, Mr. Senator, we lost that letter. Can you uh, send it certified mail next time? So you know, it's like it shows when these agencies have such disregard for their own administrators and colleagues. Well, that there's a clear d division between what agencies are doing and how they're being influenced. Because the DEA is supposed to be a bureaucratic arm of the government. When they're so disrespectful to the people in charge of government, Congress, senators, etc., by failing to answer simple questions, then it shows me that they have political motivations in what they're doing. Because they're behaving in a way where they're not beholden to the leadership in charge. They're right. only beholden to their own interests. To their own interests, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I also kind of kind of connect that to the fact that, you know, we were talking about the police officers, the police closing ranks, right? And not and not respecting the authority of the people that they're beholden to, which is the public that they serve. This is true. So it's, it's it really is the, the same mentality. We, we, we will we'll perpetuate and push our own agenda, and this is what we're doing, and we're not really going to answer to you, public or 
senator. Yeah, once a bureaucracy grows to such size and has so much power, it literally becomes like a self-fueling organism where its goal is to perpetuate itself. Yeah, you know? exactly. You stay, everyone's so reliant on it for jobs, security, cultural understanding, money. That, that money ultimately. You're so dependent on it that you have to feed that system. You need to maintain it at least, but preferably build it and grow it larger because then it's more beneficial to you. It's kind of like the root of human nature. Mm -hmm. So for me, it shows that systemic problems, you know, a theme of our show is always that things are very systemic. The nature of how these systems are designed, we think they're perfect and we can just massage out the flaws. The systems might be flawed in their inception and they need to be reimagined. Yeah, you need to really scrutinize bureaucratic organizations when they start to get so big that they're not going to answer to the oversight or the authority that governs them. Yeah, they're just bloated and infected with this political ideology of... We're not saying that there's not the good people in there, like even with the officers, right? We know there's cops out there that do good things in, in whatever, and we know that there's, you know, supposed to be, um, you know, looking out for your best interest, right? But when they, when they, when they supersede that... The, the, their goal ultimately though is to protect themselves so that that's the problem it's very problematic because like you said the vast majority of them are doing the right thing but they the, hope, but yes. the agency's response when they're like hey we want to know more about this incident with how the student was mistreated is well we're going to protect the agents involved protect the agency and the agents first and foremost so wait your concern really isn't about what's right your concern is about protecting yourself first and foremost exactly instead of doing what's right and protecting the people you're put in power to protect. Exactly. Pretty crazy. Anyway, hey, you know what? I thought this week was fun. I like the uh, round robin little deal. I like skipping from story to story. I thought we touched on some really good things. And some were, you know, kind of just touch on just to raise awareness about, like the asthma. People just be a, a, a just aware something interesting. that, something you know, it's not just somewhere else where air pollution is, is killing people. It's here in the United States and, and, and there's, there's ways that we need to, you know, look at that as things and, and fix it, you know, to help these people. Well, I, I thought that was just a cool story to highlight because not every story has a ton of talking points where there's a huge discussion to have. You know, some stories are just worth highlighting. It's good to know about. You yeah. might not be able to do anything about it implicitly, but it gives you a greater the awareness. It gives you a greater understanding of you know implications of things going on with immigration, with transit, with fuel. With industrialization. Security. So it's, it's just very interesting. And I was really intrigued by that story. So I really enjoyed the format as well, Matt. Uh, it's always uh, fun to bounce stuff off. I think sometime in the future we might even try a guest podcast, bring in a third or a fourth member, and see what it's like bouncing some ideas off of a third noggin in here. Coming for you, Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan would be a fun one. <laughs> in my dreams. But uh, thanks again for listening. Ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoyed the new uh, new format, feel free to hit us up. Anywhere, our website, YouTube comments, etc. Matt, always a pleasure. You're the man, my friend. Any, any last comments? Nope. Everybody go out and have some fun. Love one another. Peace. Peace.